there's oligarchic structures funded with EU funds where certain oligarchs are getting millions and millions are becoming billionaires. I don't think we should be making billionaires with EU taxpayer money. Hello and welcome to this episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Professor Dan Huff from the University of Sussex. Today, very pleased to be able to speak to someone who knows quite a bit about the third sector and anti-corruption and also quite a bit about what it's like to be an elected parliamentarian and to, to try and fight corruption as well. That's Daniel Freund, who is an MEP for Bundes 90 Die Grünen, so Alliance 90 The Greens, uh, and has been since July 2019. He has a background in political science, economics and law from the University of Leipzig in Germany, and he's also studied in Paris and at George Washington in the USA. In terms of real-world experience, he's also uh, spent five years working in Transparency International's Brussels office as the head of advocacy for EU integrity. So he's got plenty of background in this area. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, where to begin? I was going to bring with a, begin with a very simple question about the EU, really. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you think the main challenges for the EU as an institution are in terms of fighting corruption? Well, I would say really there are two areas. The, the first one is protecting the EU institutions themselves from uh, from corruption, from undue influence. Um, since the EU has gained power over 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 the years and is now legislating particularly on on the single market, so the rules that apply to companies uh, in the European Union are mostly made by the EU institutions by now. So the interest of of companies to make sure that the regulation goes this or that way and uh, that they can continue doing their business is is quite big. And I think that has made Brussels uh, the the second lobbying capital of the world together with Washington DC. So finding the the right rules, uh, good enforcement, that that has been a, a challenge for for the EU. And then the second one is of course well fighting corruption in the EU member states and how the EU can help assist and push the member states to to fight corruption everywhere in the in the EU I would say those are sort of broadly speaking the two areas that the EU should take an interest in is is probably not doing that enough quite yet well I was going to ask you the logical next question is to evaluate progress one one thing we know is you're never going to eradicate corruption that's if that's the aim then you're going to fail but I suspect it's not the aim um the, the EU in my experience, is actually quite realistic about what's possible. What, what's your evaluation of that? How much progress has the EU made in those areas? When we look at the first area again, uh, the corruption in the EU institutions, um, we're, we're just ahead uh, as we speak of the first anniversary of uh, the arrest of some members of the European Parliament for allegedly taking bribes from Qatar and, and other countries for, for influencing well, what we do here in the parliament. So th that was probably the most visible, biggest corruption scandal that we've had in the in the European Union institutions for a long time. So I, I don't think anyone can say that it's going great. And I, I would say, though, the, the, the biggest thing is, I mean, we have improved some of the rules uh, since Qatar gate broke, but 
on on paper the rules are reasonably good compared to to the member states you know there's cooling off periods for commissioners there is a lobby register uh, now also the members of parliament have to publish all their lobby meetings we have to file declarations of financial interest and now also assets for 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 MEPs but the, the the biggest issue is actually that on paper the rules are good but they aren't necessarily enforced and there is no independent oversight of of these rules so we have also seen in the last few years dozens and dozens of cases where where the rules are broken and i think that's mostly because the institutions police themselves so the enforcement for example of the behavioral rules of MEPs the code of conduct that's done by other MEPs same for the commissioners so our government if you want whether they can take certain jobs after leaving office or something is is overseen by the current group of commissioners and and all this self policing basically leads to very low incentive to adequately enforce the rules so i've been suggesting and fighting for an independent body overseeing all this for years uh, i got a commitment from the commission president i got a large majority in the parliament for for my proposal as well uh, but it still doesn't exist yet it has gotten an, a bit new push after qatar gate we are there, there's ongoing negotiations but whether this uh, this independent oversight uh, will come in a in a meaningful way still i i i cannot say today when it comes to the fight against corruption in the member states i mean i i think the track record of the european union in accession countries is is quite good if you look at some of those former soviet camp states uh, you know that have come come out under the iron curtain in the in the early well late 80s early 90s uh, and then joined the union in the in the early 2000s i mean in that period of rapprochement towards the european union the uh, the institution building the fight for rule of law and against corruption has has shown some formidable progress probably some of the fastest progress we've seen anywhere on the planet at at any period in time but what we also see is since they have joined the union countries like hungary and poland we have seen that the progress has stalled and 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 actually concrete backsliding right and if you look at the situation that we have in a in a country like hungary today the, it's it's no longer a functioning democracy uh, we as parliament have classified it as an electoral autocracy and and basically the whole country has turned been turned into a mafia state where a small group of countries around viktor orban is systematically stealing EU funds, national funds, everything. They're they're taking over over ever larger shares of the economy, and they are stealing not just a few millions, but they're stealing billions of uh, of, of of euros. It's it's corruption at a at an industrial scale, really. So, with that kind of situation, for a long time the EU didn't do anything. I was one of the negotiators for for a new law that's called the the rule of law mechanism where for the first time now we can withhold eu funds when when there's rampant corruption and the the rule of law doesn't work uh, in in member states and for about a year now for the first time ever there is money frozen under under this new tool so both for poland and hungary now about two thirds, or for for poland it's even a little more it's three quarters of the eu funds are are now on ice uh, until there are certain reforms uh, being done in the member states so some stuff is happening but it's still fairly well it it's 
probably very late and it's it's full not the, it's still not the full extent of of measures that that could be used and then on the legislative front i mean the, the fight against corruption is still mostly a national competence we are currently uh, negotiating a, a first ever legislative package in the area of of anti-corruption which s- seeks to harmonize some of the well to make sure that actually the different forms of corruption are actually illegal in 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 all the member states so so i would say the the eu has come late to the game there's still lots to be done now there's an awful lot that i could get my teeth into there there's loads of great uh, sort of great stuff i'll just go back to what you said at the beginning because I, I remember you being heavily involved in the piece of legislation that you mentioned i'm going to guess at the summer of 2021 when the eu adopted a report that was was open in trying to improve transparency integrity in the eu's institutions and it mentioned this independent EU ethics body, and and it's not really happened. So, very simple question: You get a majority in Parliament for this, but so, so what are the blocks? Where are the veto players in all of this? And and how are you going to get them to change their mind? Yeah, I mean, the idea is obviously to not just do this for the European Parliament, but to sure. have uh, an independent body supposedly for all the EU institutions, I would say at least for the ones that are involved in in the decisions and in in the legislative process. So Parliament, the second chamber where the government sit, the council, and of course the commission that is the sole body that can actually propose uh, legislation, right? And well, we have basically waited for a commission proposal for a year and a half. This is now there. Uh, since since last June, we, we have a proposal. And since then, uh, the negotiations are ongoing. So we sit there with the nine institutions that we have, including uh, the courts uh, and, and the European Central Bank and so on, um, and, and are discussing what they are willing to do. But there is there is a certain reluctance. And of course, there are also still people even within the European Parliament. Uh, you know, I got a clear majority, but it was far from being unanimous. Uh, there, there are lots of members that, you know, when you ask them, do, do, do we need better accountability? They say yes. But then when you go into the, into the details of it, then all of a sudden it's lots of problems and issues and uh, or excuses why we can't do it. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So I, I remember the uh, your friends on in the CDU, so the, so the German centre right. They, they did not support it, and and do you think that was largely based on on their, their their unwillingness to support an initiative from a green MEP, or was there anything rather more fundamental that they were objecting to? No, I think uh, th- this is not about where this is coming from politically. This is about they they don't want to be bothered. Uh, as as members of parliament, uh, I mean the the core argument, at least that they make publicly, is, look, we as members, we have the freedom of mandate. We, uh, you know, are accountable to to the voters, and they get to decide every five years whether they keep you or throw you out. But well, I I think that that political accountability is 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 a bit more uh, looks different, well yeah. subtled, and uh, also happens sort of within a five year mandate. And actually, for voters to be able to hold you accountable at the ballot box, they also need certain information to be able to do that. For example, like what have who have you been seeing? Who are the lobbyists uh, that you talk to? Who writes your amendments and 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 so on? But yeah, but they have been fighting against that politically from from happening. Yeah, and if I was a glass half full man, and I generally am, I'd say it sounds to me like the process is at least still moving, which is is something that it will take time. EU is a complex political body, um, but at least the wheels are still grinding forward. Um, One area where they're not 
is in terms of an EU anti-corruption report. Um, as many of our listeners will remember that there used to be such a thing. And I remember it coming out and I remember thinking this, this is potentially quite useful. I then remember reading the first one thinking, OK, this is not actually as useful as I thought, but it does give us a, a set of basic information on each country about where they are in terms of anti-corruption. And that was that. It was yeah. abolished. Yeah, it was done once uh, yeah. in 2014. So we're coming in on, on 10 years uh, from, from that happening. And initially it was actually the, the, the plan was to do it once a year or maybe once every two years. But member states hated it so much. Uh, they fought it tooth and nail uh, not not to come back. They really didn't want the commission to say, look, there are these issues in, in each of the member states that, that need to be fixed. Now, the, the excuse that the commission uses since then is they have now, I think, for about three years been publishing what's what's called the rule of law report, right? So once every year now, they, they look at different aspects of rule of law. And one of the four chapters in that report is, is on anti-corruption. So they say, look, we got this covered and we even extended it to questions of media freedom and judicial independence and, and whatnot. Since uh, last year now, they... They don't just make a report on, on every member state, but they also make some recommendations on, on, on what should change. But we're still not at, at a point where they then, you know, also act on, on those recommendations. So every country gets a list of, look, these are the things that are not going so well in your country. But if they don't do anything about it, nothing happens. So I would say that if there are serious corruption issues and uh, there are in almost every member state certain aspects of you know judicial independence and 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 the system that that is not uh, good yet um but but nothing happens to the member states that that don't do anything about it and we all as taxpayers lose from it uh, because you know there is EU money disappearing in 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 lots of places. Uh, they're stealing from from all of us, and and we aren't really doing anything about it. We are actually at the moment. I'm one of the negotiators for what's called the the financial regulation. It's it's basically the law that establishes the rules how the EU spends money, right? And some some of the things that we're trying to do there, you, you would think are, are the most natural thing in the world. For example, knowing who actually gets all this money from the EU. We're, we're spending about 190 billion euros every, every year, right? Current budget. And we don't even know where this money is going so so in I'm, I'm a budget controller right in the in the in the committee of of budgetary control here and we've been asking for years now can the commission give us a list of the biggest recipients of eu funds in in each country right who who gets the most eu money and they can't we, why not we, we, well i mean either they're lying to us or they don't know but we get basically lists that include then uh, sort of national ministries. But, you know, when we distribute, for example, the agricultural funds, I mean, obviously, first they go to some national ministry, but they hand them over to, to farmers, right? And, and I want to see the list of well, who are the biggest farms in the country and who gets most money. And I suspect that some of the whatever, the large meatpacking uh, companies and stuff, they are actually getting quite a bit of, of this or or large multinationals like Nestle or, or others uh, get this, but they don't give us a list and, and we have been pushing. And now in these negotiations, we want that to be law, right? That there has to be a database of, of the largest beneficiaries because 
my big fear is not only sort of which company this or that is is getting the money, but we we have the suspicion that in particularly in Eastern Europe, you know, there is oligarchic structures funded with EU funds where where certain oligarchs are getting millions and millions are becoming billionaires with EU funds and they're stealing public land you know they're auctioning it auctioning it off in uh, quotation marks to to friends and family of 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 the rulers and 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 then getting lots of eu funds for for the land and all of this we would like to see and and then sort of also block i don't think we should be making billionaires with with uh, eu taxpayer money you know we should be I, I think there are good arguments for transitioning farms to ed- ecological farming, to sustaining small family farms in the countryside across Europe. But I, I don't think uh, making billionaires left and right should be the objective uh, of the EU agricultural policy. So so all of this is still an ongoing fight to to even get the most basic uh, information and, and, and rules in place. Well, I think every person who looks at corruption will buy into the argument that transparency is a reasonably good disinfectant. It's a cliche, it's said frequently, um, but it certainly sounds like there's not a great deal of transparency there. Another area where, certainly here in the UK, we've looked at the EU, you know, even though we're we're no longer in it, but uh, we've looked at the EU with some interest, was to do with beneficial ownership legislation. Now, David Cameron, a man who has committed many political sins, in my humble opinion, did seem quite keen on beneficial ownership legislation and we, we have some here in the uk or at least we we're moving in that direction but there have been critics of the eu they're saying the eu seems less keen on being transparent about beneficial owners of companies um what would your take on that be well on paper it should already exist the the legislation that we have should create beneficial ownership registries where you can go look up the the ultimate owner of of any company or shell structure or or whatever but in practice that that's not the case because we unfortunately you know the, the the compromise deal that was done and agreed by mostly the governments of member state was well every country does it a bit their own way so there isn't that one integrated database where you know you have lots of company structures uh, you know where you have uh, a holding company in another eu member state than 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 the the the, the company itself and so, so these registries for now don't really work well across borders. Also, the data that is in those databases often outdated. Then every country has their own rules on who can actually access this information. Uh, can anyone or do you have to somehow prove that you have a legitimate interest? Some countries charge reasonably ridiculous amounts, fees uh, to, to access uh, the database. So so yeah, w- one of the things we, we have the situation with a former Czech prime minister, Andrei Babish. Yeah. And one, one of the people that has probably received more EU funds in his life than pretty much anyone. Uh, he is one of those that has become a billionaire with, with EU funds. So we wanted to know uh, you know, how much money is he still getting today? And how big is actually the conflict of interest of this guy sitting at the negotiation table in Brussels, negotiating the seven-year budget for the union, and thereby sort of determining how much money will he get from the EU for the next seven years? And then finding out, uh, or trying to find out, how many companies he owns, what was close to impossible. In some of the beneficial ownership registries, he was the beneficial owner of of his conglomerate in in two other countries he was not so it depended very much on which which register you looked at and puzzling this together how many companies does he actually own across the european union was close to impossible so 
should exist on paper in practice not so much challenging concept yeah um i i, I can i can see the angle there um Linked to the second set of answers you gave way back at the beginning about the EU and, and new member states and, and looking sort of east and looking southeast, Liliana Svetnoska uh, uh, recently published a PhD on when the EU is most influential in terms of in- influencing corruption policy in southern and eastern Europe. And she basically came, you know how it is with PhDs, she wrote 80,000 words, but basically came up with something that was quite simple, but quite interesting. And she said that the EU is often most influential at the beginning of the accession process. And she looked at her own country of, of North Macedonia, which is a complicated case, but she also looked at um, Romania and the Czech Republic. And she came to the conclusion that the closer member state or prospective member states got to being a member of the EU, the more they sort of felt they'd done the heavy lifting. They got there and progress slowed, but the EU had got into this path-dependent relationship and, and they sort of came in anyway. Now, of course, Bulgaria and Romania did have their applications knocked back all those years ago. I mean, if it had any major impact, then then I missed it, really. But do you think when we talk about the EU enlarging, and of course it's likely to enlarge, I mean, Ukraine is a case on the horizon for very sensible reasons, but there are other cases in, in Southeastern Europe. Do you think the EU is likely to learn any lessons from some of the mistakes it, it made there? Or do you think this is one of those really intractable problems where the, the political tone is just more important than getting all the details right in one specific area of policy like anti-corruption? So obviously, uh, in, enlargement is not, you know, not not just decided on a on a single issue, not just on anti-corruption, or not just on whether you know the judiciary works or whether the market market economy is stable and and, and working. But there is a whole host of um, of issues that come in, and obviously, there is a strong geopolitical component uh, there there as well. And we have seen with some of the countries, you know, that have been. In, in accession limbo for, for long periods of time, they can turn away and then say, well, uh, we're, we're not getting in. So we now we're turning somewhere else, going to go to the Chinese, going to the Russians or, or something. And that's obviously considerations that, uh, that have to be looked into as well. And if as much as I am frustrated today with, with the situation that we currently have in Poland and Hungary, if I look at those countries that that haven't joined the union, like uh, Belarus or uh, Moldova, Serbia, yep. Serbia, it's it's not like the the situation in terms of corruption or uh, or the rule of law is any better than than in even the cases that in in an EU context are are doing worse. So so that's obviously something you have to take into account as well. But I think the most important thing that the EU needs to do and where we're not fully there yet is not to see the moment of accession as sort of now now progress is over kind of kind of thing as i said with the with the conditionality now for the first time we we are putting more pressure on on existing member states to to keep reforming but i think basically you know what we see what works during the accession process to to put pressure to uh, incentivize reforms and particularly to incentivize through the use of eu funds you know that's very much something that we could be doing way more as well for those countries that have already joined there is a reluctance there and and 
if I look at now the process, for example, with Ukraine, some of the things we are asking from Ukraine right now in, in order to, to keep progressing on their accession bid are things that don't exist in the uh, in, in the in the member states that are already in. So, for example, the commission is asking uh, Ukraine to introduce a lobby register. I mean, there are some EU member states that have lobby registers, but not all of them. And, and the reluctance of those member states that have been in for quite a while to do what the new accession or most recent accession countries have done or need to do, you know, they don't necessarily want to do that either. And and I think we need to get better at that. And and also something that I have learned from the whole struggle with Viktor Orban is he is formidable in finding you whataboutisms. You know, when you criticize, look, the way that you are uh, appointing judges leads to leads to a lot of issues, and then he will tell you. Well, that is the exact same mechanism that uh, that Germany is using. Or when you talk about media concentration, he will tell you, but look, media concentration is pretty, pretty yeah, much yeah. the same yeah. in, in, in Finland. So he has sort of, you know, assembled this Frankenstein system of the worst examples uh, of, of how to do it from all the different member states. But, you know, that also means that some of the member states that don't have a similar issue, but that have one issue in a, in a particular area, we need to push them towards fixing those issues so that they no longer present a fig leaf uh, to to someone like Viktor Orban. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine Orban is a, a master of the art of, of what about are there. That, that doesn't surprise me to hear that. Um, a skilled operator. In terms of the expansion, I, I, I also think many, it's another cliche, but they are processes, not events, right? You know, sure, there is one day that you are a member and one day that you're not, or if you're the UK, or the other way around for, for accession countries. But the whole thing is a process. And, uh, you know, evolution takes time, right? And, um, you know, getting things right immediately is is not the way this stuff generally works. Having said that, I'm talking, I say it's a process, not an event. You mentioned Qatar Gate, if we can call it that. I mean, it was a bit of a shock when that came out. And I speak as a football fan. You know, we, we know plenty about some of the corruption-related issues that took place to do with Qatar. But I think many of us were, were quite surprised at uh, some of the accusations that came out there towards MEPs. Now, we don't need to go into the details of those here, but do you think Qatargate is likely to have a discernible long-term impact on the way that MEPs work or think? Or is it going to be just one of those transient phenomena that, that felt big at the time, but ultimately doesn't seem to change too much about the way that individuals work and think? I think uh, that, that decision hasn't been taken yet, uh, how, how long term the impact is. Uh, as I said, some of the rules have been changed, but I wouldn't say that that it has been too major. Uh, well, we are still negotiating that independent uh, ethics body. If, if that comes about, there is at least something tangible a new uh, a new institution to to oversee this I, I would say target is is the tip of the iceberg uh, but we have seen other examples from Azerbaijan from Russia uh, and I'm sure there's many many other countries that seek to uh, influence the decisions that are taken in the EU and you know not all of them uh, just do an exchange of arguments not all of them are fair and and proper and clean so it's it's definitely something that we will have to keep a lookout for not only for the EU, but uh, I think this is true also for for the for the national level. And maybe one 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 last idea, because when when you look at the international rankings, Transparency International and the likes, when they look at uh, corruption, you know, it's it looks like Europe is is doing fairly well mostly, right? Particularly the northwestern part of, uh, of Europe. Many of our countries at the top of the 
of, of Transparency uh, International's annual rankings. But what goes under in, in these kind of analysis is, of course, the role that we play in enabling corruption in the rest of the world. You know, that many of us don't experience corruption in our day-to-day -day life. When we go to the doctor or have encounters with the police, we, we, we don't get asked for bribes usually. But our banks, our property markets, our company service providers enable corruption in, in the rest of the world. You know, we provide safe haven for ill-gotten gains, the loot from corrupt people from the rest of the world. And I think on that, we're still doing too little to, to make sure that Europe is not a safe haven for the corrupt, for the criminal, for the terrorists and, and whatnot uh, from the rest of the world to, to launder their money here, to park their money here in, in, in the European Union. And I think on that, we, we really ought to do more. And we have seen when Russia invaded Ukraine and all of a sudden we started looking at you know, what do those Russian oligarchs actually own and uh, what yachts have they parked in our ports and stuff. And it took us way too long uh, to to find out. And I think on lots of stuff we still haven't found out uh, because our registries don't work, because land registries don't work, because we simply didn't care enough uh, to check uh, who actually owns those giant yachts that uh, come, come into our ports. Well, to be clear, it's not me. I don't have a giant. I don't have any yacht. But I, t I totally hear what you're saying. And actually, a previous episode of Kickback, we looked at what we called the enablers of corruption, and that they weren't really in in in, in um, African capitals. That they they were in London, uh, and they were in Switzerland, and they were in other Western capital cities. You can't you can't see them necessarily, but they're there, and they have a a very discernible impact. So so we we on the kickback team very much buy into that. And, and we strongly recommend listeners have a listen to the Enablers of Corruption pod that we did relatively recently. You've also sort of inadvertently answered my last question there, Daniel, but I'll, I'll ask it again anyway. I don't know how much you, you have to do with academics who, who look at corruption and anti-corruption, but it, yeah, a little bit maybe. But if, if you were to um, if you were to direct them in any particular direction, what, what do you think needs to be looked at most urgently by those of us who, who have our positions in the ivory tower? I think really, you know, how how the good rules that we sometimes have in Europe on paper, how they do not work in practice and, and what can be done, uh, you know, to, to make them work in, in practice. And that goes for the rules that we have in the EU institutions, but that also goes for the laws, for example, on anti-money laundering. Uh, that that we have because too often in politics it's sort of I mean we struggle a lot uh, you know we haggle over amendments and, and and to make those rules and then in a way once once the law is agreed we we turn our eyes to 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 something else and then the 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 labor of looking at how does it actually work in practice how are people maybe circumventing the rules that we made is a task that is too often ignored. I hear you on that one. And I think that's a very fair charge sheet that academics, um, and to be fair, I think that there are an ever growing number of academics who would recognise that and are rising to the challenge. Daniel, I know you're a very busy man. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us and um, best of luck in your anti-corruption endeavours in the future. Thanks.